Appendix A. The Influence of Menstruation on the Position of Women in Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume 1, by Havelock Ellis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Dion. Appendix A. The Influence of Menstruation on the Position of Women a question of historical psychology which so far as i know has never been fully investigated is the influence of menstruation in constituting the emotional atmosphere through which men habitually view women i do not purpose to deal fully with this question because it is one which may be more properly dealt with at length by the student of culture and by the historian rather than from the standpoint of empirical psychology it is moreover a question full of complexities in regard to which it is impossible to speak with certainty. But we here strike on a factor of such importance, such neglected importance, for the proper understanding of the sexual relations of men and women that it cannot be wholly ignored. Among the Negroes of Suriname, a woman must live in solitude during the time of her period. It is dangerous for any man or woman to approach her, and when she sees a person coming near, she cries out anxiously, Mikay, Mikay, I am unclean, I am unclean. Throughout the world we find traces of the custom of which this is a typical example, but we must not too hastily assume that this custom is evidence of the inferior position occupied by semi-civilized women. It is necessary to take a broad view not only of the beliefs of semi-civilized man regarding menstruation, but of his general beliefs regarding the supernatural forces of the world. There is no fragment of folklore so familiar to the European world as that which connects woman with the serpent. It is, indeed, one of the foundation stones of Christian theology. Yet there is no fragment of folklore which remains more obscure. How has it happened that in all parts of the world the snake or his congeners, the lizard and the crocodile, have been credited with some design, sinister or erotic, on women? Of the wide prevalence of the belief there can be no doubt. Among the Port Lincoln tribe of South Australia, a lizard is said to have divided man from woman. Among the Chiriguanos of Bolivia, on the appearance of menstruation, old women ran about with sticks to hunt the snake that had wounded the girl. Fraser, who quotes this example from the Lettres Edifantes et Curieuses, also refers to a modern Greek folk tale, according to which a princess at puberty must not let the sun shine upon her, or she would be turned into a lizard. The lizard was a sexual symbol among the Mexicans. In some parts of Brazil, at the onset of puberty, a girl must not go into the woods for fear of the amorous attacks of snakes, and so it is also among the Macusi Indians of British Guinea, according to Schomburg. Among the Basutos of South Africa, the young girls must dance around the clay image of a snake. In Polynesian mythology, the lizard is a very sacred animal, and legends represent women as often giving birth to lizards. At a widely remote spot, in Bengal, if you dream of a snake, a child will be born to you, reports Sarat Chandra Mitra. In the Berlin Museum für Volkerkund, there is a carved wooden figure from New Guinea of a woman into whose vulva a crocodile is inserting its snout, while the same museum contains another figure of a snake-like crocodile crawling out of a woman's vulva, and a third figure shows a small round snake with a small head and closely resembling a penis at the mouth of the vagina. All these figures are reproduced by Ploss and Bartels. 
even in modern Europe, the same ideas prevail. In Portugal, according to Reyes, it is believed that during menstruation women are liable to be bitten by lizards, and to guard against this risk they wear drawers during their period. In Germany, again, it was believed, up to the eighteenth century at least, that the hair of a menstruating woman, if buried, would turn into a snake. It may be added that in various parts of the world virgin priestesses are dedicated to a snake god and are married to the god. At Rome, it is interesting to note, the serpent was the symbol of fecundation, and as such often figures at Pompeii as the genius patris familius, the generative power of the family. In rabbinical tradition, also, the serpent is a symbol of sexual desire. There can be no doubt that, as Ploss and Bartels, from whom some of these examples have been taken, point out, in widely different parts of the world, menstruation is believed to have been originally caused by a snake, and that this conception is frequently associated with an erotic and mystic idea. How the connection arose, Ploss and Bartels are unable to say. It can only be suggested that its shape and appearance, as well as its venomous nature, may have contributed to the mystery everywhere associated with the snake, a mystery itself fortified by the association with women, to build up this worldwide belief regarding the origin of menstruation. This primitive theory of the origin of menstruation probably brings before us, in its earliest shape, the special and intimate bond which has ever been held to connect women, by virtue of the menstrual process, with the natural or supernatural powers of the world. Everywhere menstruating women are supposed to be possessed by spirits and charged with mysterious forces. It is at this point that a serious misconception, due to ignorance of primitive religious ideas, has constantly intruded. It is stated that the menstruating woman is unclean and possessed by an evil spirit. As a matter of fact, however, the savage rarely discriminates between bad and good spirits. Every spirit may have either a beneficial or malignant influence. An interesting instance of this is given in Colenso's Maori lexicon, as illustrated by the meaning of the Maori word atua. The importance of recognizing the special sense in which the word unclean is used in this connection was clearly pointed out by Robertson Smith in the case of the Semites. The Hebrew word tame, or unclean, he remarked, is not the ordinary word for things physically foul. It is a ritual term, and corresponds exactly to the idea of taboo. The ideas unclean and holy seem to us to stand in polar opposition to one another, but it was not so with the Semites. Among the later Jews, the holy books defiled the hands of the reader, as contact with an impure thing did. Among Lucian Syrians, the dove was so holy that he who touched it was unclean for a day, and the taboo attaching to the swine was explained by some, and beyond question correctly explained in the same way. Among the heathen Semites, therefore, unclean animals which it was pollution to eat were simply holy animals. Robertson Smith here made no reference to menstruation, but he exactly described the primitive attitude toward menstruation. Wellhausen, however, dealing with the early Arabians, expressly mentions that in pre-Islamic days, clean and unclean were used solely with reference to women in and out of the menstrual state. At a later date, Fraser developed this aspect of the conception of taboo, and showed how it occurs among savage races generally. 
He pointed out that the conceptions of holiness and pollution, not having yet been differentiated, women at childbirth and during menstruation are on the same level as divine kings, chiefs, and priests, and must observe the same rules of ceremonial purity. To seclude such persons from the rest of the world, so that the dreaded spiritual danger shall not spread, is the object of the taboo, which Fraser compares to an electrical insulator to preserve the spiritual force with which these persons are charged from suffering or inflicting, harm by contact with the outer world. After describing the phenomena, especially the prohibition to touch the ground or see the sun, found among various races, Fraser concludes, The object of secluding women at menstruation is to neutralize the dangerous influences which are supposed to emanate from them at such times. The general effect of these rules is to keep the girl suspended, so to say, between heaven and earth. Whether enveloped in her hammock and slung up to the roof, as in South America, or elevated above the ground in a dark and narrow cage, as in New Zealand, she may be considered to be out of the way of doing mischief, since, being shut off both from the earth and from the sun, she can poison neither of these great sources of life by her deadly contagion. The precautions thus taken to isolate or insulate the girl are dictated by regard for her own safety as well as for the safety of others. In short, the girl is viewed as charged with a powerful force which, if not kept within bounds, may prove the destruction both of the girl herself and of all with whom she comes in contact. To repress this force within the limits necessary for the safety of all concerned is the object of the taboos in question. The same explanation applies to the observance of the same rules by divine kings and priests. The uncleanliness, as it is called, of girls at puberty and the sanctity of holy men do not, to the primitive mind, differ from each other. They are only different manifestations of the same supernatural energy, which, like energy in general, is in itself neither good nor bad, but becomes beneficent or malignant according to its application. More recently, this view of the matter has been further extended by the distinguished French sociologist Durkheim. Investigating the origins of the prohibition of incest, and arguing that it proceeds from the custom of exogamy, or marriage outside the clan, and that this rests on certain ideas about blood which, again, are traceable to totemism, a theory which we need not here discuss, Durkheim is brought face to face with the group of conceptions that now concern us. He insists on the extreme ambiguity found in primitive culture concerning the notion of the divine, and the close connection between aversion and veneration, and points out that it is not only at puberty and each recurrence of the menstrual epoch that women have aroused these emotions, but also at childbirth. A sentiment of religious horror, he continues, which can reach such a degree of intensity, which can be called forth by so many circumstances, and reappears regularly every month to last for a week at least, cannot fail to extend its influence beyond the periods to which it was originally confined, and to affect the whole course of life. A being who must be secluded or avoided for weeks, months, or years, preserves something of the characteristics to which the isolation was due, even outside the special periods. And, in fact, in these communities, the separation of the sexes is not merely intermittent, it has become chronic. The two elements of the population live separately. Durkheim proceeds to argue that the origin of the occult powers attributed to the feminine organism is to be found in primitive ideas concerning blood, 
not only menstrual blood but any kind of blood is the object of such feelings among savage and barbarous peoples all sorts of precautions must be observed with regard to blood in it resides a divine principle or as romans jews and arabs believed life itself the prohibition to drink wine the blood of the grape found among some peoples is traced to its resemblance to blood and to its sacrificial employment as among the ancient arabians and still in the christian sacrament as a substitute for drinking blood throughout blood is generally taboo and it taboos everything that comes in contact with it now woman is chronically the theatre of bloody manifestations and therefore she tends to become chronically taboo for the other members of the community a more or less conscious anxiety a certain religious fear cannot fail to enter into all the relations of her companions with her and that is why all such relations are reduced to a minimum relations of a sexual character are specially excluded in the first place such relations are so intimate that they are incompatible with the sort of repulsion which the sexes must experience for each other the barrier between them does not permit of such a close union in the second place the organs of the body here specially concerned are precisely the source of the dreaded manifestations thus it is natural that the feelings of aversion inspired by women attain their greatest intensity at this point thus it is also that of all the parts of the feminine organization it is this region which is most severely shut out from commerce so that while the primitive emotion is mainly one of veneration and is allied to that experience for kings and priests there is an element of fear in such veneration and what men fear is to some extent odious to them these conceptions necessarily mingled at a very early period with men's ideas of sexual intercourse with women and especially with menstruating women contact with women as crawley shows by abundant illustration is dangerous in any case indeed the same ideas being transferred to women also coitus produces weakness and it prevents the acquisition of supernatural powers thus among the western tribes of canada Boas states only a youth who has never touched a woman or a virgin both being called tiaits can become shamans after having had sexual intercourse men as well as women become ta ki il i e weak incapable of gaining supernatural powers the faculty cannot be regained by subsequent fasting and abstinence the mysterious effects of sexual intercourse in general are intensified in the case of intercourse with the menstruating woman thus the ancient indian legislator declares that the wisdom the energy the strength the sight and the vitality of a man who approaches a woman covered with menstrual excretions utterly perish it will be seen that these ideas are impartially spread over the most widely separated parts of the globe they equally affected the christian church and the penitentials ordained forty or fifty days penance for sexual intercourse during menstruation yet the twofold influence of the menstruating woman remains clear when we review the whole group of influences which in this state she is supposed to exert she by no means acts only by paralyzing social activities and destroying the powers of life by causing flowers to fade fruit to fall from the trees grains to lose their germinative power and grafts to die she is not accurately summed up in the old lines o oh, menstruating woman thou art a fiend from whom all nature should be closely screened her powers are also beneficial a woman at this time as allian expressed it is in regular communication with the starry bodies 
even at other times a woman when led naked around the orchard protected it from caterpillars said pliny and this belief is acted upon according to bestanzi even in the italy of to-day a garment stained with the virgin's menstrual blood it is said in bavaria is a certain safeguard against cuts and stabs it will also extinguish fire it was valuable as a love filter as a medicine its uses have been endless a sect of valentinians even attributed sacramental virtues to menstrual blood and partook of it as the blood of christ the church soon however acquired a horror of menstruating women they were frequently not allowed to take the sacrament or to enter sacred places and it was sometimes thought best to prohibit the presence of women altogether the anglo-saxon penitentials declared that menstruating women must not enter a church it appears to have been gregory the second who overturned this doctrine in our own time the slow disintegration of primitive animistic conceptions aided certainly by the degraded conception of sexual phenomena taught by medieval monks for whom woman was templum edificatum super cloacum has led to a disbelief in the more salutary influences of the menstruating woman a fairly widespread faith in her pernicious influence alone survives it may be traced even in practical and commercial one might add medical quarters in the great sugar refineries in the north of france the regulations strictly forbid a woman to enter the factory while the sugar is boiling or cooling the reason given being that if a woman were to enter during her period the sugar would blacken for the same reason to turn to the east no woman is employed in the opium manufactory at saigon it being said that the opium would turn and become bitter while Anamite women say that it is very difficult for them to prepare opium pipes during the catamenial period. In India, again, when a native in charge of a lime kiln which had gone wrong, declared that one of the women workers must be menstruating. All the women, Hindus, Mahometans, Aboriginal Gons, etc., showed by their energetic denials that they understood this superstition. In 1878, a member of the British Medical Association wrote to the British Medical Journal, asking whether it was true that if a woman cured hams while menstruating, the hams would be spoiled. He had known this to happen twice. Another medical man wrote that, if so, what would happen to the patients of menstruating lady doctors? A third wrote, in the journal, for April 27, 1878, I thought the fact was so generally known to every housewife and cook that meat would spoil if salted at the menstrual period that I am surprised to see so many letters on the subject in the journal. If I am not mistaken, the question was mooted many years ago in the periodicals. It is undoubtedly the fact that meat will be tainted if cured by women at the catamenial period. Whatever the rationale may be, I can speak positively as to the fact." It is probably the influence of these primitive ideas which has caused surgeons and gynecologists to dread operations during the catamenial period. Such, at all events, is the opinion of a distinguished authority, Dr. William Goodell, who wrote in 1891, I have learned to unlearn the teaching that women must not be subjected to a surgical operation during the monthly flux. Our forefathers, from time immemorial, have thought and taught that the presence of a menstruating woman would pollute solemn religious rites, would sour milk, spoil the fermentation in wine vats, and much other mischief in a general way. Influenced by Ori tradition, modern physicians very generally postpone all operative treatment until the flow has ceased. But why this delay if time is precious, and it enters as an important factor in the case? 
I have found menstruation to be the very best time to cure right away fungus vegetations of the endometrium, for, being swollen then by the efflux of blood, they are larger than at any other time, and can more readily be removed. There is indeed no surer way of checking or stopping a metroagia than by curetting the womb during the very flow. While I do not select this period for the removal of ovarian cysts, or for other abdominal work, such as the extirpation of the ovaries, or a kidney, or breaking up intestinal adhesions, etc., yet I have not hesitated to perform these operations at such a time, and have never had reason to regret the course. The only operations that I should dislike to perform during menstruation would be those involving the womb itself. It must be added to this that we still have to take into consideration not merely the surviving influence of ancient primitive beliefs, but the possible existence of actual nervous conditions during the menstrual period, producing what may be described as an abnormal nervous tension. In this way we are doubtless concerned with the tissue of phenomena, inextricably woven of folklore, autosuggestion, false observation, and real mental and nervous abnormality. Laurent has brought forward several cases which may illustrate this point. Thus he speaks of two young girls of about sixteen and seventeen, slightly neuropathic, but without definite hysterical symptoms, who, during the menstrual period, feel themselves in a sort of electrical state, with tingling and prickling sensations, and feelings of attraction or repulsion at the contact of various objects. These girls believe their garments stick to their skin during the periods. It was only with difficulty that they could remove their slippers, though fitting easily. Stockings had to be drawn off violently by another person, and they had given up changing their chemises during the period because the linen became so glued to the skin. An orchestral performer on the double bass informed Laurent that whenever he left a tuned double bass in his lodgings during his wife's period, a string snapped. Consequently, he always removed his instrument at this time to a friend's house. He added that the same thing happened two years earlier with the mistress, a café concert singer, who had indeed warned him beforehand. A harpist also informed Laurent that she had been obliged to give up her profession, because during her periods several strings of her harp, always the same strings, broke, especially when she was playing. A friend of Laurent's, an official in Cochin, China, also told him that the strings of his violin often snapped during the menstrual periods of his anamite mistress, who informed him that Anamite women are familiar with the phenomenon, and are careful not to play on their instruments at this time. Two young ladies, both good violinists, also affirmed that ever since their first menstruation they had noted a tendency for the strings to snap at this period. One, a genuine artist who often performed at charity concerts, systematically refused to play at these times, and was often embarrassed to find a pretext. The other, who admitted that she was nervous and irritable at such times, had given up playing on account of the trouble of changing the string so frequently. Laurent also refers to the frequency with which women break things during the menstrual periods, and considers that this is not simply due to the awkwardness caused by nervous exhaustion or hysterical tremors, but that there is spontaneous breakage. Most usually it happens that a glass breaks when it is being dried with a cloth, Needles also break with unusual facility at this time. Clocks are stopped by merely placing the hand upon them. I do not here attempt to estimate critically the validity of these alleged manifestations, some of which may certainly be explained by the unconscious muscular action, which forms the basis of the phenomena of table-turning and thought-reading. 
Such a task may best be undertaken through the minute study of isolated cases, and in this place I am merely concerned with the general influence of the menstrual state in affecting the social position of women without reference to the analysis of the elements that go to make up that influence. There is only one further point to which attention may be called. I allude to the way in which the more favorable side of the primitive conception of the menstruating woman as priestess, sibyl, prophetess, an almost miraculous agent for good, an angel, the peculiar home of the divine element, was slowly and continuously carried on side by side with the less favorable view through the beginnings of European civilization until our own times. The actual physical phenomena of menstruation, with the ideas of taboo associated with that state, sank into the background as culture evolved. But on the other hand, the ideas of the angelic position and spiritual mission of women, based on the primitive conception of the mystery associated with menstruation, still in some degree persisted. It is evident, however, that while in one form or another, the more favorable aspect of the primitive view of women's magic function has never quite died out, the gradual decay and degradation of the primitive view has, on the whole, involved a lower estimate of women's nature and position. Woman has always been the witch, she was so even in ancient Babylonia, but she has ceased to be the priestess. The early Teutons saw sanctum aliquid et providum in women who, for the medieval German preacher, were only bestia bipedalis, and Schopenhauer and even Nietzsche have been more inclined to side with the preacher than with the half-naked philosophers of Tacitus's day. But both views alike are but the extremes of the same primitive conception and the gradual evolution from one extreme of the magical doctrine to the other was inevitable. In an advanced civilization, as we see, these ideas having their ultimate basis on the old story of the serpent and on a special and mysterious connection between the menstruating woman and the occult forces of magic tend to die out. The separation of the sexes they involve becomes unnecessary. Living in greater community with men, women are seen to possess something, it may well be, less than before of the angel-devil of early theories. Menstruation is no longer a monstrific state requiring spiritual taboo, but a normal physiological process not without psychic influences on the woman herself and on those who live with her. End of Appendix A